We are just at the beginning of our journey through Ephesians, and I've compared this to going through the Alps in Switzerland, and today we are in the mountains, and we are going to look at some wonderful truths that are contained in this word. Let me read for us verses 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Let's pray. Father, how we look forward to that day when all things will be brought together under the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we don't see it that way in our world. We see division, we see conflict, we see struggles and trials. We see sickness and disease and death. And Father, we experience those things in our life, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our families. And God, we look forward to the day when you are going to make all things new. We pray that you would use your word today to encourage us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you handle the gray days of life? How do you handle those days when the weather is bad and the news is worse? When you hear of things going on in the world that tell of wars and conflicts or of disease that is spreading uncontrollably, it seems, news of crime, injustice, or when in your own life you are experiencing disappointments, discouragements, illness, maybe depression, maybe a broken relationship. Those days are hard, and we all have them. I mean, they come at unexpected times when you maybe weren't planning for things to happen, and then life takes an unexpected twist. And one of the things that amazes me in the Scripture is Paul's ability to rejoice in the midst of adversity. When Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians, he was in prison. Same was true for the book of Philippians, the letter to the Colossians. Those are called his prison epistles because he was in prison at the time that he wrote these letters. And I, I think of how he expressed his thoughts in those days when, like, in Philippians 4.4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Writing from a prison. And it's not like Paul was having a minor inconvenience. It's not like, you know, he got up that morning and his chariot wouldn't start, or when he was walking to work, some guy racing by splashed mud up on his clothes. It wasn't like that. I mean, he didn't know how this imprisonment was going to turn out. In the letter to the Philippians, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He didn't know whether he was going to survive or whether he would die in that prison. He believed that God still had more for him to do, that his best intent was to stay there and to remain so he could serve the church. But here he was saying that if I live, I live for Christ. And if I die, that is gain. And even when Paul was free, he faced danger in all of his missionary travels. He wrote of hardships and dangers from countrymen, dangers from bandits. He experienced shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonments, false brothers, even desertion 
by those who were part of his team. And did Paul ever get discouraged? You know, you read this and you wonder, did he ever have a bad day? Well, if you go to 2 Corinthians 1, you learn that he did, that there was a time in his life when he despaired even of life. His depression was so severe at that point. He thought it would be better to die than to continue on, but he said, even this taught me to rely on God more and more. He had learned to be content in every situation and to trust God for his provision. Paul could rejoice in adversity because of his faith in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and sovereign God. Have you come to that point? I still have a ways to go on that. I look at that and I stand in amazement at Paul. And I want to be like that. I want to be able to trust God at all times and in all situations. And that's where God wants to bring each of us. But all of us probably feel like we have a ways to go on that. And I have learned that there are two ways we can look at life. We can look at what we have and be grateful for it. Or we can look at what we don't have and be bitter or disappointed or discouraged. But I can tell you it's a lot happier when we look at what we have been given in Jesus Christ. We are all richly blessed. And that's what this passage is about. Now, I want to say this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but just I want to point this out to you, that there is a Trinitarian emphasis in Paul's prayer in these opening verses from verse 3 to verse 14. Remember, it's just one long sentence, and there is this Trinitarian backdrop that in verses 3 to 6, Paul focuses on the work of God the Father who planned our salvation in eternity past, chose us to be in Christ, chose us to become part of his family, a people that would be saved for all of eternity. In verses 7 to 10, what we're going to look at today, it's about Jesus Christ and the work that he did to accomplish our salvation. And then in the last section, from 11 to 14, Paul mentions the work of the Holy Spirit who applies this truth to our life. It's in that Holy Spirit that we are sealed for the day of redemption. It's the Holy Spirit who's the down payment, the deposit on everything that is to come. And so there's this beautiful reflection of the Trinity who is at work in all of our salvation that just runs through this whole passage. So what do we have in Jesus Christ? There are three things I want to point out today. Number one, we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption through his blood, and we see that in verse 7, when Paul says in him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Redemption isn't a word we use a lot today, so it needs some explanation. Uh, we use it sometimes in sports, like if one team beats another, you know, and then later in the season it turns around and that team beats the other. You know, for example, if Green Bay beats the Vikings, you know, and then it turns around later in the season and the Vikings beat the Green Bay Packers, you know, some would say that that's redemption. Others might say that's luck, the way things are going, but, you know, I understand that too. No. But uh, a lot of times when there's that turnaround, you say it's redemption or it's payback. That's the way we think of it. 
There's another way we use the word redeem. You think of that when you maybe have a coupon or you want to redeem a special offer that was made when you're buying something. You know, you, you redeem this coupon. But that's not exactly what the word means here either. In the Bible, the word redemption had to do with the emancipation of slaves or prisoners. And it meant to deliver or set someone free by means of a payment. Redemption was this setting someone free by means of a payment. And everybody understood that at that time. Slaves were treated like property. They had no rights. They could be bought and sold on the open market. The only way they could be set free would be if someone was willing to redeem them. Someone would pay the ransom price to set them free. And that's what Jesus did for us. We've been singing about that this morning. I don't know if you caught those words about blessed redeemer or ransom from heaven or those words in the choruses we sang. Sometimes I think we should turn around, have the sermon first, and then later you could sing those choruses and hear those words again in light of the Scripture. Jesus redeemed us from the slave market of sin. We were sold into slavery. We were in bondage to our sin, and we were powerless to save ourselves. There was no way that we could ever come up with the payment. The payment for a man's life is costly. And so here we are. We're in this condition where we are powerless to save ourselves, and Jesus came, and he paid the penalty for our sins. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 28, it says that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the price was costly. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1, and he said, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Our life could not be bought with silver or gold. It could only be paid for by the blood of one who was innocent, Jesus Christ. E.F. Harrison wrote on these verses, he said, No word in the Christian vocabulary deserves to be held more precious than the word Redeemer. Even more so than Savior, for it reminds us that our salvation has been purchased at great personal cost, his very own life. This week, there was an interesting story in the news about a man named Nicholas Winton. He's a British citizen, and this week he celebrated his 105th birthday. He looked pretty good still in the pictures that I saw of him. In fact, uh, here is one of him, uh, not quite this week, but as he was up in years. And uh, he has a fascinating story of his life, if you're not familiar with it. In December 1938, Nicholas Winton was a 29-year-old London stockbroker. And he was about to leave for a skiing holiday in Switzerland when he received a phone call from his friend, Martin Blake, asking him to cancel his holiday and immediately come to Prague. He said, I have a most interesting assignment and I need your help. Don't bother bringing your skis. And when Winton arrived, he was asked to help in the camps in which thousands of refugees were now living. 
And what he found out in those camps was that these individuals were starting to be rounded up and held in these camps by the Nazis. In November of that year, the Nazis had launched what was called Kristallnacht, a bloody program that resulted in the deaths of many German and Austrian Jews on the nights of November 9th and 10th, 1938. And so they knew that these Families and children were in grave danger. And Nicholas went and determined that he was going to do whatever it would take to rescue as many children as he could before the war began. And ultimately, he would save the lives of 669 children. Well, fast forward 50 years. Nicholas went and didn't tell anyone, not even his wife, and it was when his wife was looking around in the attic of their home that she came across a photo album. And in it were pictures of these children and a complete list of their names and a few letters from the parents of the children who had written back to thank him. You see, Nicholas went and had made arrangements in other countries, and there were only two that would open their doors, Britain and Sweden, for these children to be transported to families who would care for them. And here he had gotten some letters of thanks, and when he shared his story with his wife, she was amazed. Today, those scrapbooks and other papers are held at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel. The story was shared with Dr. Elizabeth Maxwell, and she was the one who helped to arrange so that this could be told in a BBC documentary called The Power of Good. And what was interesting in that documentary was there's a moment when all of these people are there, and Nicholas Winton doesn't know who they all are. And the one that's narrating this asked the individuals to stand if they had been rescued by Nicholas Winton, and he looks around. And all of these people stood that were around him. 669 children were saved. Almost 6,000 people are alive today because of what he did, risking his life for someone else. And those children that were saved called themselves Winton's children. The list includes people like the British film director, Carol Rice, who directed the French lieutenant's woman, Isadora, Sweet Dreams, a Canadian journalist and news correspondent for CBC, Joe Schlesinger, Lord Alfred Dubbs, a former minister in the Blair cabinet, Lady Milena Baines, a patron of the arts, Dagmar Samova, who was a cousin of Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. I mean, you go on and on to the people and what they did with their lives, it is really astounding. When I think of the work of Jesus Christ, how many have been saved because of his work? Only time will tell of the millions upon millions that have been saved. But how many will also be saved because of your witness for Christ in pointing people to Jesus? I think of the work that God has called us to do, just like Nicholas Winton, who responded that this something has to be done to save these children. Do we respond to the gospel in that way and we say something has to be done to bring this good news of the gospel to those who have never heard? And we give our life to that. And we do our part through prayer, through giving, through supporting of missionaries, through witnessing in our personal life. 
You see, because Jesus Christ died for us, we are free to live for him. And only eternity will tell how many people that we have had an impact upon through our witness and our faith as well. Secondly, we have forgiveness of sins, and we see that in the second half of verse 7 into verse 8. We have the forgiveness of sins, which is in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. The word used here for forgiveness in Greek is aphasis, and it means to release someone from what binds them. It pictures a person bound like in chains or shackled with this heavy burden that is on them. And that burden is removed or lifted. There's this release that comes. When God forgives our sins, he refuses to hold them against us any longer. They've been dealt with. They've been covered by the blood of Christ. He refuses to hold them against you and me. The scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And in Jeremiah 31, in the passage that speaks of the new covenant, he says, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. I mean, isn't that just astounding to think about? I will remember our sins, your sins, my sins, no more. They are covered. How great is his forgiveness? It is immeasurable. I mean, how far is the east from the west? I mean, you can't measure that. You know, if he said that how far is the north from the south, there'd be somebody going, let's see, it's so many miles from the north pole to the south pole, and they'd try to put a limit on it. But east and west, you can't measure it. And that's how God's grace is. That's how great is his forgiveness. God's forgiveness is in accordance with the riches of his grace. It's not out of his grace that he forgives us. It is according to the richness of his grace. Let me explain that for you. When John D. Rockefeller was alive, he was the richest man, not only in America, but he was the richest man in the world. And he had made his money on oil and the monopolies that he maneuvered to control. And if he wished to give out of his riches, there were two ways that he could give. He could give according to his riches, or he could give from his riches. And what's interesting in history is that Rockefeller most often chose to give from his riches. And there were many times when he kind of posed for a photo op where he was seen with his top hat and his coat and his tails and the whole thing, and he was giving a dime to a little waif. And he wanted those pictures to be seen. Here he is giving a dime. That is giving out of your riches. That's not giving in proportion to what you have. That'd be like Bill Gates giving somebody a dollar. What's that to him with all that he has? God is not cheap. God does not give out of his riches. God gives according to his riches. He gives us life. He gives us forgiveness that is undeserved. He's preparing all of these things in eternity for us that will be unfathomable for us to one day see. God is gracious. He is lavish in his grace. And how many people long to be free of their guilt and their shame? How many people in our world are carrying burdens that they don't need to carry if they would just turn to Christ? 
Even believers sometimes carry things that they don't need to carry. I think of a story that was told by Pastor Steve Brown. And he said, early in my ministry, I counseled a woman who some 20 years before had been unfaithful to her husband. And for years, that sin had haunted her, and she had carried that in her heart. I was the first person she had ever told about it. And after we talked about it and we prayed together, I recommended that she tell her husband. He said, that's not always the advice I give, but in this case, I knew the husband, and I knew that after the initial shock of the revelation, he would forgive her, and I believed that it would be better for their marriage. It wasn't easy for her, but she promised that she would tell him, and she said, Pastor, I trust you enough to do what you ask, but if my marriage falls apart as a result, I want you to know I'm going to blame you. And he said she didn't smile when she said that either. <laughs> and that's when I began to pray with a great deal of earnestness. Lord, if I gave her dumb advice, forgive me and clean up my mess. But he said, when I saw her later, she looked 15 years younger. What had happened? I asked her, and she said, when I told them, she exclaimed, he replied that he had known about the incident for 20 years, and he was just waiting for me to tell him so he could tell me how much he loved me. 20 years carrying a burden that she didn't need to carry. 20 years where he knew and he had forgiven her in his heart, just waiting for her to say the words. And I think of our relationship with God. Are there things that we are carrying that we're trying to keep secret or are we honest with him? Are there hurt relationships where we need to go to a brother or a sister in Christ and make things right and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Are you free from your sins? Have you confessed them to God? And have you asked forgiveness of those that you've hurt? God wants us to be right with him and he forgives us according to the richness of his grace. And the third thing we see in this text is that we have hope. We have hope, not just for the future, but hope for today. Listen to what Paul said in verses 9 and 10. He said that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure, he wanted to do this. He wanted us to know his plan for the future, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. In the New Testament, the word mystery always refers to a truth that was once hidden, but now has been revealed. Something hid in the past, but now God has disclosed this to us. And what is that mystery or secret that Paul is talking about? It is God's plan to bring everything in heaven and on earth under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. That's what he intended from eternity past. The fall did not surprise him. It did not change his plan. God is moving toward that day when everything will be unified. The word Paul uses in verse 10, to bring together all things under one head, it's interesting. That's really like an accounting term. 
It's a word that you would use if you were adding up all the figures in a ledger, ledger and you're coming to a total. And you want to announce what that total is, where everything adds up. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that in a world of confusion where things don't always add up or things don't always seem fair, one day they will. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like things just don't add up? I, I can't make sense of this, or I don't see how God can look upon the abuse in our world or the injustice in our world, or where you say in your heart that why is it that some families just seem to be hit so hard and suffer so much, and others maybe not quite as much in terms of what we see? Why do things happen the way they do where those that are trying to be honest and live for Christ get slammed sometimes, and those who seem like they're living such wicked lives seem like they're going free? God, it just doesn't make sense. What Paul is saying is that one day it will. It's all going to add up. It's all going to come out perfectly. It's all going to make sense because of Jesus Christ. How awesome will that be? The day is coming when everything will be brought into unity and harmony under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And think about what it would be like if all government, all business, all education, all industry, all agriculture, all entertainment were in perfect harmony with God's will. I mean, can you imagine that? Living in the world that we do, it's hard for us to even comprehend what that would be like. We can dream about it. And the Scripture says we can look forward with confidence to that day because it will happen. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor, wrote that the perfect harmony that will be restored will be a harmony in man and between men. There will be harmony on earth and harmony in the brute creation. There will be harmony in heaven, all under this blessed Lord Jesus Christ who will be the head of all. Everything will again be united in him. And wonder of wonders, marvelous beyond compare, when all this happens, it will never be undone again. It'll be finished. All will be reunited to him in eternity. That's the message. That's God's plan. This is the mystery that has been revealed to us. And these things are so marvelous that you will never hear anything greater either in this world or in the world to come. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. I mean, I think about these things, and I just get so excited thinking about that day when God is going to make all things new and all of creation is waiting for that day. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 18 and 19, that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. It is waiting. It's longing for that day. I, I was thinking about Gail and I were on a walk this week, and we were walking through this wooded area, beautiful area, and uh, I turned to her and I said, those trees right there are waiting for that day. They're waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. All creation is longing for that day. So what do we do today when life is hard 
and the world seems like it's falling apart, we look to Christ and we remember what he has done for us. And we praise him and we thank him. Because in Christ we have redemption. We have been set free. In Christ we have forgiveness. The burden's been lifted. We've been released from our sins. And in Christ we have hope. Hope for today. Hope for tomorrow. Hope for all of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this passage of Scripture is so rich and so awesome in what it declares that we could ponder it and meditate on it for days to come and still not fathom the depths of what that's going to be like. But oh, how it fills our heart with joy. And may that joy just spill over into our life this week as we go from this place. May the confidence we have in the authority of your word to strengthen us, encourage us, and may we live as a witness for Christ in all that we do so that others might come to know you too. We pray this all for your honor and glory. Amen. Now today we don't have a closing song. I'm going to ask you to stand for our benediction and then we'll be dismissed. At the end of the letter that Jude wrote, the scripture says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.